0: Notice I didn't say tap to Luke 17 on your phone or tablet, whatever, but turn to. That's just a personal preference of mine. I love having a tangible, physical copy of the Bible. Uh, it's not the only way to read. Of course, you can read on computer, tablets, whatnot, but I think there's something special about getting be being able to feel the pages, looking to see uh, where paragraphs end and begin, and just burning that, and engraving that into your mind. I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of Luke with you. It's been a little while, because uh, rightly so, we take a little bit of time to pause, to do something a little different and unique during the Christmas season. And just a little pop quiz for you. Do you all remember uh, what 1 Timothy one fifteen is, or why did Jesus come into the world? I hear, I hear a few rumblings. I, I heard some unity, maybe not precise wording, but yeah, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Very good. That's why Jesus came. So Luke 17, I want to read verses 1 to 10 to uh, situate our hearts and minds, then we'll unpack it. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the small berry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now, sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. So many of you, I bet that all of you in here are familiar with the popular, infamous New Year's resolutions, right? Usually... We are familiar with these things because of failure, just to be frank. I looked up a few of the the top 10, top 20, top 15 different resolutions, and these certainly will sound familiar to you, one season of life or another. Exercise more. Lose weight. Get organized. Learn a new skill or hobby. Save some more money. Quit smoking. Cut back on alcohol. Cut back on sugar. Travel more read X amount of books, write so on and so forth. How many of those sound familiar to you? Maybe you have pondered it last night as you were staying up till midnight. Uh, I personally was not. I was sleeping. Rung in the New Year through sleep. It was wonderful. But um, you see, the point is, New Year's resolutions, it's usually people are contentious about it because some people are like, it's a waste of time. You know, focusing on that. I, I personally think, I'm more charitable towards them because I think it's good for us to think about goals, think about things that we're striving for, not just coast in life. But regardless, what's more important than goals is who you are in life. What's more important than what you do is who you are as a person. And you see, as human beings, and even as Christians, it's easy for you and I to get caught up in activity. get caught up in this rut of just doing. We constantly think about what do I have to do tomorrow when we go to bed, right, the night before? What do I have to do tomorrow? What do I have to do when I wake up? What do I have to do this week, this month, this year? And again, because it's New Year's, we typically think about these goals that I have for my own life. But below the surface of all of that is who are you as a person? While there's A lot going on in these 10 verses here. It may not seem like there's one unifying factor that draws all these verses together. I personally believe that there's one phrase, one identity, and two words that serve as a thread that unites these 10 verses. And that is this, unworthy servant. It's in verse 10. We are unworthy servants. Now, if you were like me, when I personally read this, verses 7 to 10, I initially thought that Jesus was speaking ill of what the Master is doing here. So just to pick it apart really quick, so suppose one of you, so Jesus is this hypothetical, kind of figurative example. It's not necessarily real, but it's certainly plausible to, to enter yourself into these persons' shoes. Suppose one of you has a servant, a slave, an employee, today's uh, vernacular, Suppose one of you has a servant, they're plowing, looking after the sheep. Will you, or will you as the master, say to the servant, after he's done doing all the outdoors work, will you say to him, come in, come on, it's time to sit down and eat together at the table, right? At least in my mind, I thought, well, that sounds kind of nice, right? A master being kind to to his servant, his employee, And Jesus is kind of speaking against that. No, the master shouldn't do that. He should be telling the the employee, the servant, no, come in, it's time for you to cook my food. Uh, I'm hungry. And uh, then after you do all that, then you can eat. And I thought, is Jesus speaking against kindness from a superior to somebody serving? No, because if you read Ephesians 6 or Colossians chapter 4, it's quite clear from God's word that masters or bosses are to treat servants or slaves or employees with respect, with dignity, with love, with grace, and with care. So that's not what Jesus is speaking against here, but rather, Jesus is addressing the issue of roles, responsibilities, one's identity, your position in life. And if you think this might be a little crude or crass or overbearing upon the servant, you and I can understand this, even in today's context, what I mean. If you go to Cracker Barrel or whatever your favorite restaurant is, I just don't, I'm assuming y'all like Cracker Barrel, um, wherever there's somebody who, who serves you, you know, a waiter or waitress, what is their primary goal in that role? It's more or less to make you happy, right? It's to serve you the food accurately, whatever you told them. It's to serve it quickly, swiftly. It's to Make sure your water, your tea is refilled constantly. Make sure you have all the napkins you need, so on and so forth. Right? That's the job. That's the role. Those are the responsibilities that this waiter or waitress has as their identity. We, we get this in today's day and age. And that's what Jesus is saying. This servant's role primarily is to serve, to please the master. I mean, just imagine if a waiter or waitress, you know, they came out with the tray of food and then they... they put the food down on the table, and then they all of a sudden scooted into the booth with you. It was like, you know what? I want some of that food. I've been working hard all day. It's time to reward myself. Right? All of us would be shocked at that. The same kind of thing as what's going on here. Right? The disciples would be shocked. They would be, what? The servant is sitting down at the table before he's done all that he's supposed to do. His, his shift has not yet ended. No, it's absurd. Jesus is saying the same thing. The servant's role is to serve the master. So for you and I today, right, if you are a Christian, your identity, your position, your role, your responsibilities in life is quite simple. You are an unworthy servant before the Lord. An unworthy servant. Not, right, as opposed to, an entitled, self-centered brat. We are all unworthy servants before the Lord. And, You have to wonder, what is the point of a servant? It's to please and serve the master. Our number one concern as Christians, as unworthy servants, should be, Lord, what do you want me to do? How can I please you? How can I serve you? So as we enter into, or actually as we have begun 2023, regardless if you'd like resolutions or not, our focus should not be primarily and supremely on, what goals do I have for this year? What goals do I have for my own life that I can personally implement for my own personal happiness? There's a lot of me, I, talk right there. But rather, my charge to you this morning, if you're a Christian, your number one concern should be, Father, what do you have for me this year? What do you want me to do this year? What are you telling me to do as your unworthy servant? What are your priorities? How can I please you and serve you this year? I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you care, because this passage reveals to us two different commands that we as unworthy servants must obey. Firstly, pursue holiness, which comes from verses 1 to 3. And then secondly, practice forgiveness, which comes from verses 3 to 6. Pursue holiness, practice forgiveness. But firstly, pursue holiness. This is from verses 1 to the beginning of verse 3. So Jesus right here, verse 1, he says, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. You see what Jesus is doing right here. Immediately, he's dispelling the notion that the Christian life is easy that the Christian life will be carefree, that we'll be able to just coast in life. Jesus is stating, frankly, and certainly, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Now, Jesus isn't speaking in general about hardships, about suffering in general, although that's clear in Scripture, that we uh, will suffer sickness, we'll suffer the loss of a loved one. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's specifically talking about sin and temptation. The English Standard Version, this verse, it says that temptations to sin are sure to come. The New American Standard Bible says that stumbling blocks are inevitable. And a quick little reminder, right, the the, the language used here. What, what is the Christian life? What is Christianity? What is the Christian life look like? What is it made up of? One way to think about it is as a long hike or very long race, which the Bible uses those language. It's a walk, it's it's a race, we, we pursue, we march ahead, we move forward. All right? Think about I have a couple of friends who set out to hike the Appalachian Trail, I think it was last year. And but what's the goal, right? You you go to it's from Maine to Georgia, it's thousands of miles. The longest stretch is in Virginia, so that's something we can be proud of as Virginians. I think it's about five hundred miles of trail in Virginia. But It's a long goal, all right? It takes several months to complete if you're booking it at a decent pace. But the goal is to reach the end, right? If you start in Georgia, to get to Maine or vice versa. That's the goal, the end goal. And to do that, you take one step at a time. You keep your eyes ahead. You keep your eyes forward. But the reality is, if you're not careful, you will hit stumps, you will hit logs, you will hit rocks, you will hit loose gravel, and you will, if you're not careful, you will stumble, and you will fall, you'll get hurt, you'll trip, you might get a bruise on your knee, you might break uh, your wrist if you land wrongly, you might bang your head if you, right, if you take a true tumble. And the point is, there are things in life that will cause you to stumble. In this Christian life, our goal is to be with God in heaven, to fellowship with him, which we have celebrated in the Lord's table. We look forward to that day, but Sin and temptation will cause us to stumble. It'll cause us to get hurt. It'll discourage us. It'll get our face in the mud. It'll get us distracted. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. It's inevitable. Right? And even Jesus himself, the God man, wasn't immune to temptation. Now, to be clear, he never sinned, of course, right? That's clear in the Gospels and in Hebrews. He never sinned, but he himself was tempted. By Satan and by other people, right? Even Peter, right? You you don't know Jesus. You 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 can't go to the cross. That's that's foolish. You can't do that. Get behind me, Satan! Quit tempting me to disobey the will of the Father. Right? Jesus Himself was tempted to sin. And the reality for you and I today is, spiritual warfare is real. Right? Do not forget that. I think it's easy for us Christians to kind of just. Goes through life and we think, it, it, it's just what's right in front of me. Right, What you see is what you get. We forget about the reality that there are demonic forces, that there are demons, that Satan is still prowling around in the world like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Looking to trip you and I up. Spiritual warfare is real. But you see, Jesus' point here is not to be merely aware of evil and sin out there in the world. It's not public awareness that he's concerned about, but rather personal avoidance of sin in your own heart. Right? There's sin, there's temptation, there's all kinds of traps in the world out there. I got that. But the key is, woe to anyone through whom they come. Jesus is calling you to focus your attention upon your own heart. Woe to you if sin and temptation and causing people to sin and to stumble if it comes through you. Right? This is a, the classic truth that you've probably even heard in the secular world, which they understand to a degree, and that's this: You've heard some derivative of it. You can control what happened how, sorry, you can't control what others do, but you can control how you respond. Right? How many of you have heard something like that before? All right, I think we all have. Again, the secular world understands it to a degree, but they fall quite short in the truth of it. Because the reality is, we can't control what happens around us, but only by the grace and the power of the Spirit can we control how we respond. You cannot control how others treat you, but by the grace and power of the Spirit, you can control how you treat others. You in and of yourself can't control the, the the window in terms of sin and temptation hitting you, right? You can't just go out and make a little commune and become join a little monk society and withdraw yourself from the world because if you go there, sin and temptation will follow, right? No matter how hard you try to isolate yourself from evil in the world, it still is in your heart to a degree. But By the power and grace of the Spirit, you can resist and flee temptation. And that's what Jesus' point is. You can't control what happens around you, but focus on yourself, your inner being. Verse 3, it says, watch yourselves. Be on your guard. As 1 Corinthians 16 says, stand firm in the faith. Watch yourselves. Be on your guard. Be careful. And... That's why he says, and you'll notice in verse 2, he says, It would be better for them, for that person, to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And the reality is, uh, the commentators I've read, when it says little ones here, it seems like, in general, people think that that's referring to believers, right? Little ones, weak ones. Regardless, Luke is referring, Luke and Jesus, right, Luke is the human author, he's referring to weak people, right, the vulnerable, the people who are susceptible to struggling, to stumbling, which the reality is, that's everyone. But, if you're, maybe the King James Version words it differently, I think we typically, when we see little ones, we think about children, and that certainly applies, right, because children are the, the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most susceptible to the schemes of the devil. That is why parenting is such an important task in this world that we live in. It must be taken with somberness and with seriousness. And it would be better if, right, a hundred-pound dumbbell was tied around your neck. You were thrown into Sharando Lake than to cause a little child, a fellow believer, another human being to stumble in sin. Hyperbolically, Jesus is stating how insidious sin and temptation is. But, Jimmy D, you might respond. I thought you said this first point was pursue holiness. I haven't heard you say either of those words. Well, I'm glad you brought it up, because you have to understand, our great purpose in life, as Christians, it's not merely to fight sin. Okay, some churches, I think, and and just some Christians, depending upon your context you grew up in, it can be easy for us to just focus on, no, right? You're not allowed to do this. Don't do this. I, I think of this specifically regarding sexuality, how the church sometimes approached that. No, 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 you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. All right, I got that. But what are we called to do? What is the good that we are called to do? That's every command in the, right, the Ten Commandments, all of them. If it restricts you from something, it's preserving something good. Now, what is it? It's the same regarding sin in general. When God tells us no, it's not merely to say no. It's not merely to be a killjoy. It's because God is protecting and preserving something far richer and far more beautiful. And that is this, to be in fellowship with him and with his people. That is what you and I are striving for. Not just fight sin, embrace to embrace, to enjoy His grace, His blessings, and His promises. Psalm 27, verse 4 encapsulates it so well. I encourage you to memorize this verse this year. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of His face into that church that's the one thing that we should desire gaze upon the beauty of the lord to be in his house to dwell with him in perfection unhindered fellowship that's our goal so pursue holiness right you will not win the battle to sin if all you say is no Because if you say no to one sin, you will say yes to another sin. It is just human nature. The way to battle and fight sin, to watch yourselves, to stay pure, to stay whole and clean before the Lord, to see to it that we don't cause others to stumble, the way to do that is by pursuing holiness. That's another one of those words that kind of used in the past. We don't really talk about it much in church today, but what is holiness? Holiness. Simply put, holiness is separateness. It's set-apartness. It's distinctness. It's being cleansed. It's being pure from, as opposed to, the stench and filth of this world. And that's what you and I call it to be, to be holy, to be set apart, to be distinct from the world in which we live. So in 2023, as an unworthy servant, I encourage you, pursue holiness. There are many, and you have to understand, that's a massive topic. Uh, the second thing we'll go over in just a moment, practicing forgiveness, massive topic. Uh, each of them deserving of their own sermons. And really, the Bible, there's so many passages that talk about how to pursue holiness, but I want to leave you with two specific ones, some specific ways in which you can do that this year. They're simple, you've heard them before, but it's a good to be reminded of the truth, as Peter says in Second Peter chapter one. What are they two? Read the Bible, cultivate Christian community, be in the Word of God, cultivate and pursue Christian community. Right? We hear it every year, and it's because we need to hear it every year. Right? Be in the Word. I don't know what this looks like in your own life. I do know. That Jesus clearly tells us we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You and I need the Bible. We need scripture. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. So if that looks like a reading the Bible through a year plan, go for it. It may just look like reading one chapter a day. Go for it. If the busyness and the, the reality of life just weighs upon you, read a few verses a day. Read a a passage, a paragraph, 10 verses, something you need, the Bible. And I think in general, a good rule of thumb to live by is the whole quality over quantity thing. So if you read three, five chapters a day, if you're trying to read through it in a year, that's commendable. But if you close the Bible, and if you don't remember a thing that you just read, that's not really helpful in the Christian walk. I think it's better to read five verses Meditate on one, think about one throughout the entirety of your day so that you can constantly feed upon it and draw strength from it throughout your day. So secondly, cultivate Christian community. It's not just me and the Bible and my house. It's me and the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and God's people. Christianity is so much bigger than just me and God. Christianity is personal, but it is not private. You cannot be a faithful Christian and ignore God's people. So that's, again, I commend you for being here today. I say that several times in my preaching, and I truly mean that. Simply showing up, being here, is massive. The ministry of presence, just simply being here to greet others, to sing together, to pray together, to hear God's word, that in and of itself is a wonderful act of obedience to cultivate Christian community. But do it more and more, right be more involved here at Hillsboro. Open up your home to invite other Christians It right? could be family, could be friends, could be church people, open up your home cultivate be intentional about pursuing Christian community that 's how we pursue holiness, just two specific ways. The second command that we, as unworthy servants must obey is to practice forgiveness. This is from verses 3 to verse 6. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, You can say to the smallberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, forgiveness is one of those topics that everybody loves to talk about. Everybody loves to receive, but almost nobody wants to practice personally. Because, and I truly think, this is one of the hardest, if not the hardest thing that you and I are called to do in this life. It's to forgive others as God has first forgiven us. A massive topic, right? It takes a lifetime to unpack, to understand, to practice. But here's a few little bits of clarity that I want to offer on this topic of forgiveness. Well, you know, some back and forth. I've, I've been told to forgive and forget. It's hard. I, I, I don't know how to do that. Forgive and forget. Well, the reality is that's not what God calls you to do. It doesn't necessarily call you to forget. What, what about that verse? Right? It's in Isaiah, but it's also in Hebrews, later quoted, Hebrews 8.12, when God says of his people, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. So here's a rhetorical question for you. Does God have amnesia, voluntary amnesia? No, he doesn't. Right? God knows everything. He's omniscient. That's one of the doctrines of God. He knows everything. So it's not as though he just somehow blocks it out of his mind. He, he doesn't remember it anymore, but rather the word for remember in the, the context of what it means to remember, I'm not going to remember your sin. It means I'm not going to count it against you. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. I'm not going to bring up your sin constantly and hold it over your head in a guilty fashion so when god says forgive it's the exact same thing i think it might be impossible you know truly unless the spirit helps you to truly forget it in this life that's not what he's calling you to do he's calling you forgive don't count it against somebody don't hold it over somebody's head well then you might respond well you know what if I forgive somebody who's truly hurt me, I'm implicitly saying that sin has no consequences. I'm saying that sin is little. It's unimportant. It can just be glossed over and swept over and swept under the rug. I'm not saying that at all. Neither is God or his word. Sin does have consequences. Right? Scripture is quite clear that it will always bear the fruit of wrath of death, and of judgment. Sin will always lead to those fruits. But you have to understand forgiveness. It's one of the greatest acts of humility and faith that you can exude in your life. Because in forgiving those who have wronged you, you are implicitly saying to God, Lord, judgment is in your hands right god doesn't it's not that god doesn't care about sin no. you look at the cross you see clearly how seriously god takes sin but in confessing our sin to god and forgiving others before god almighty we are saying lord judgment is in your hands i'm recusing myself from being that tool unless you're in law enforcement or you you know you're in the judicial branch of government which not many of us are But we are saying, Lord, judgment is in your hands, right? That's humble to say something like that. Trusting that God will take care of it in his due time and in his way. So another, perhaps, misconception of forgiveness. You must be best friends with the person who's offended you in forgiving them. Not at all. Find the verse where it says that. It is not in the Bible. The reality is, and you know this in your own life, if trust was broken, it, is, it takes a long time, if at all, for it to be restored. I think I heard Charles Spurgeon, or read, stumbled upon it somewhere, Charles Spurgeon said something to the, to the effect of, the beard of reputation, once shorn, doesn't easily grow back. No need no to call out, but I mean, Jonathan Bowman's beard right now is very, very impressive, uh, very envious in a... Hopefully, a godly way, but um, right a beard that is shorn doesn't easily or quickly grow back. The same is true with trust and with reputation. that doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with somebody that doesn 't mean you have to you know be buddy buddy and just act like everything is cool between you no but it does mean you forgive them that you release. Their grip of of pain and bitterness, you release that from holding and being a cloud over your life. And just one last thing I'll say is, you know what? Forgiveness is just plain hard. I don't want to. And you'll notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say if somebody sins against you. He says if your brother or sister sins against you referring to a fellow disciple, a fellow Christian. And the reality is, right, when the lost sins against us, it hurts, it's real. But the reality is, if it's a loved one, if it's a Christian, if it's somebody who claims to follow Jesus who sins against us, the pain is even more real and more raw. It's not so much if Rather, when your brother or sister sins against you. And if I haven't done that yet personally, I hope 2023 is not the year, but I'm going to do it at some point. I will offend you and I will sin against you at some point, and you likewise to me. Okay? You likewise to one another. But what do we do? Right? Jesus gives us instructions for when those moments come rebuke them if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. This is extremely hard to do. That's why the apostles, right, Peter, James, and John, and Philip, all of them around, responded to Jesus, Lord, increase our faith. Right? That's high order that you're giving us. Increase our faith. Give us more faith. But you see, the reality is to forgive. It's based out of Ephesians 4, 31 to 5, 2. The power, the strength, the motivation to forgive is found in the Gospel. Which I this passage. It's one of my favorites. Verse 31 in Ephesians 4, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice the implication there is that the church the Ephesians Christians you and me some of these things blight our souls right bitterness how many of you have experienced bitterness recently rage anger brawling slander malice ill will towards somebody right all of us feel those things sadly practice those things at different times in life jesus says get rid of it and when you think about it in reality that's how you and i treat god constantly continually in our sin we're bitter towards him we're angry towards him we're raging and and wrath towards him we we like to brawl and fight against him lord your word says but i don't like it i'm going to go my own way we slander his name right the third commandment do not take the lord's name in vain we slander his name through verse 32 be kind and compassionate to one another again to christians to one another to the family of god be kind and compassionate to one another Forgiving each other, this is the key right here, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God never calls you to do something that he himself has not first done or that he himself first is. God calls you to forgive others. You say, that's hard. I don't know how to do that. That's impossible. I don't want to. It says, follow God's example. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. And here's another truth I've heard from a book or something. I don't remember exactly where. It's not original. It's the most important thing. It's not, not for me. But it's whatever the law requires, the gospel produces whatever the law requires, the gospel produces. These are tall orders from God to forgive. In and of yourself, you cannot do that. But the gospel of God, through the power of the Spirit, can work through you to fulfill that command. And that is really the only way you can obey it. So back in Luke chapter 17, the apostles, they say, Lord, increase our faith. We need some extra strength to do this. And Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the small berry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, what is he saying here? Well, Jesus is addressing the issue that it's not about how the quantity of your faith, but rather the object of your faith. Right? Faith is not some kind of currency in which you can you know, like, I've got $10 worth of faith. I need $20 to forgive somebody. That's not how faith works. But rather, faith is merely, it, the strength of your faith depends entirely upon the object. If you're walking on a frozen lake, right, we hit that, had that cold spell recently. It seems like it's springtime again. It looked like it was going to be 60s today. But during that cold spell, right, the frozen lake, It doesn't matter how much you trust that lake to hold you up or not. How confident you are, doesn't matter. What matters is how thick is the ice. That's the only thing that matters. If you were to sit down right in these pews, in a chair or something, it doesn't matter how strong you think it is, how much faith in it you might have. What matters is how strong it truly is. So what you and I don't need is more faith per se. What you and I need is a deeper knowledge of how strong and loving and gracious God is. Because as we embrace the gospel, as we understand the gospel more and more, our faith will grow. Our actions will grow in terms of forgiving others. Follow God's example. He has first forgiven you. So do church... If you're a Christian, the reality is, and I conclude with this, Jesus has saved you from the penalty of sin. Jesus has saved you from the punishment of sin. You've got, the crude way of thinking about it is, right? Hellfire insurance, right? You're covered, you're safe. When you die, you're going to heaven. That's secure. But here in the world we still live underneath the power and the presence of sin. We're not fully rescued from it yet. That will happen when we are glorified, when God, Jesus, comes back to raise us from the grave. But until then, you and I are called to serve God as unworthy servants. You and I are called to walk in step with the Spirit. And the way to do that the way to walk and step with the Spirit, to be in line with Christ, follow His own heart. What was the question we opened up with? Father, how can I serve you? Master, how can I serve you? Jesus, how can I you? He tells us, to holiness, practice in life. That's where you must start. In church, in 2023, rather than give you a bunch of right, kind of secular, shallow goals, though they could be good, they could be good, I want to charge you, pursue holiness, practice forgiveness this year as an unworthy servant of God. May you and I remember our identity, who we are, are servants before the Lord, that's not, deriv- that's not uh, you know, a slander, that's not low, Paul himself, that's one of his greatest titles that he likes to refer to himself as Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I'm a servant of Christ, and I'm an unworthy one at that. It's a beautiful honor that we can have. May you and I do our duty to fulfill our duty as God and as Jesus has called us to do. Let's pray, and then we'll close with the doxology. Holy Spirit, please take your truth, embed it deep into our hearts, cleanse us, purify us, renew us. Holy Spirit, give us the strength that we need to pursue you and to forgive others, especially those who are closest to us. Help us to be quick to forgive, quick to confess before you. And as hard, as frustrating, as mysterious as it might be, give us a posture that continually grows in the forgiveness that you first showed to us. Help us to grow, Jesus. We need you. Apart from you, we are nothing. But with you and by your power, all things are possible. Help us to do the impossible today and this year by living a Christian life, a godly life, and a loving life. Commit these things to you, not asking for our will, but yours alone to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you stand and sing the doxology with us?